Uh, good morning, everyone. Trust that you all had a great week in light of Resurrection Sunday. Just worshiping, celebrating what God has achieved on our behalf through the sacrifice of His Son. How good it is to gather again on this Lord's Day and to come to the feet of the cross and to worship Christ yet again. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We'll read verses 1 through 19. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink. After that you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village and men who had leprosy met him, they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except that for, this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Well, I'll begin with a story that I'm not quite certain of. Because as I'm getting older, I have more things to remember. And my memory is failing me. My peak of my brain powers reached years ago, so I'm declining in my memory. So, I think when I was like in sixth grade, I watched this made-for-TV movie, and um, it was about this father who was who had a son who was very ill, and he was in the hospital, and uh, he was told by I think it was based on a true story. He was told by the doctors that his son had less than a year to live, that all the Doctors agree that this is a terminal case. His son, less than 10 years old, a young boy, had less than a year to live. 
father went to a Roman Catholic church and they heard a story about how a priest was praying for someone who was sick in the church years ago. And he walked around the church, or actually he knelt on his knees and crawled around the church seven times to show uh, his earnestness and his prayer to God. And God answered that prayer of this priest. This father heard the story, was so moved, and he vowed to run a marathon and devote himself to God in this way and ask God if he would heal his son. And the rest of the movie was about him training, waking up early, um, after work, training, there the marathon, he ran this marathon, he was exhausted, and he finally finished as he finished, he embraced his son, and the little narrative came on the screen. The son, it's been eight years since uh, this story happened, and the son's still alive. And um, the message of that movie was, if you do these deeds earnestly before God, it will move God's heart to answer our prayers. Uh, what moves God's heart? What can we do to turn God's attention toward us, to hear our prayers, and to meet us in our time of need? The Bible addresses this question and tells us the message of that movie is wrong. The message of the Bible is clear, and we can see it in Luke 17, 1 through 19. In the commentaries that I read, I read this week, Several of them say that there is no coherent message in this section of Scripture. There is no unifying theme, unifying message given here. But a few disagree, and I would agree with them, that there is a central message that is being given to us in these verses. The main reason I believe that is because um, chapter 1, verse 3 of the Gospel of Luke Luke, as he set out to write this gospel, he said, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, my dear Theophilus. He wrote this gospel account, not in a random manner, bringing together a random collection of our Lord's teachings, events, and miracles, and putting it together haphazardly for his friend Theophilus. No, he was a doctor, very meticulous. He was a scholar in his own right. He devoted himself to study the life of Christ, his ministry of teaching and miracles, and he brought it together in an orderly manner to present God's message to us. I think that gives us a clue that these events were not put together haphazardly. I think we can discover the message of this passage once we uh, dive into the historical context of Luke 17. We need to uh, do a little bit of uh, um, traveling here in our minds. We need to remove ourselves from the 21st century Orange County life and uh, put ourselves 2,000 years ago in Israel, 
in someone's uh, large home and put ourselves in the midst of conflict, in the midst of uh, animosity and division. Place yourselves right now, and there are four groups of people in this room. There is Jesus, there are his disciples, and then there are the Pharisees in the back of the room. And then all around Jesus and the disciples are uh, the unsavory people of that time. Past collectors, the traitors of the nation of Israel, prostitutes, drunkards. There are just, you could just sense just their immorality exuding from them just by their dress, their language, their interactions. They're all surrounding Christ. And starting from Luke 15, remember, the Pharisees are grumbling amongst themselves in their hearts. And they're grumbling against Christ. This man welcomes tax collectors and sinners. He's not tolerating them. He's welcoming them. He's embracing them. He's bidding them to come. The Pharisees are angry at Christ, angry at these tax collectors, and there is this conflict, there is this division. It is in this context our Lord gave the parable of the two sons, and um, the tension is rising. You know, you can kind of feel the temperature rising. You can kind of sense conflict and hatred, even anger in the room. And then our Lord pushes that point. Uh, he, he turns to uh, the Pharisees and he calls them out. Um, Luke 16, verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men. All right? He said to them, who are them? It's not the disciples, not the tax collectors. He's talking to the Pharisees. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men it's an abomination of the sight of God. And then Luke adds his uh, own commentary in verse 14. His aside comment explaining what is going on here. The Pharisees, they were lovers of money. And so our Lord um, rebukes them. Right? Our Lord is calling them out with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Here are the Pharisees, external righteousness. Right? They love religion, love legalism. And yet they see religion as a means to godly, godliness as a means to gain. Means to financial gain, financial increase. Our Lord knows their hearts, knows that they love money. So he uses this illustration, this parable, the story of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And the beggar, Lazarus, goes to be with Father Abraham in his bosom. And the rich man who loved money is sent out to Hades. And he is in eternal torment. And there is an inseparable chasm between Lazarus and the rich man. And our Lord indicts the rich man and his family, all your brothers. If they're not going to listen to the law and the prophets, they're not going to listen to someone who's raised even from the grave. So he's calling them out. The tension has... Uh, Definitely reach boiling point. And then chapter 17, verse 1. It is after this rebuke of the Pharisees 
our Lord turns to his disciples and he's telling them to be different. He's telling them, don't follow the example of these Pharisees. The Pharisees, by their example, their love for money, and by their teaching, by the legalism, religion, external righteousness, uh, they are leading people astray. They are the damned ones. They are the condemned ones. They are the ones who all have um, the heavier stone, the millstone, that crushes grain, right? tied around their necks, thrown the deepest part of the sea. That would be a better destiny than what is waiting these false teachers. Verse 1, temptations of sin to sin are sure to come. But woe. A word of condemnation to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to, if a millstone were hung around his neck, cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. I don't think he's talking about the tax collectors, talking about the drunkards, talking about the prostitutes, how temptation is coming through them, so don't be like these sinners. No, they're there because they're repenting. They're contrite. They're striving to believe in Christ. He's telling the disciples um, the danger of false teaching and false teachers. This is reiterated in James chapter 3, where James said, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, because you who teach be judged with a stricter judgment. Talks about how we all stumble in many ways. Right? If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man. Never at fault. No, no such person exists. You put bits into horses to control them. All kinds of birds, animals, reptiles have been trained and are being trained by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And, and, and often we take those verses and say, wow, yeah, tongue is a small part of the body, but it's full of poison. It sets what a small, what a great fire is started by a small spark. It's not only itself burned by the fires of hell. It sets the course of a man's life uh, on fire. And we take those verses and say, oh yeah, I shouldn't you know, say bad words. I shouldn't gossip. I shouldn't speak ill of others. I shouldn't grumble. We apply it in that way. But James 3 is talking about Luke 17. Same thing. The power of the false teacher's tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And with that small instrument, that instrument destroys the false teacher. But not only him, everybody who listens to him, everybody who believes in him, he sets the course of their lives on fire, the fire of hell. Because he's leading them astray, away from God, to their own destruction. Our Lord um, is telling His disciples to do their best to um, to not be part of any false teaching, part of any false error by their example or by their deed. And He had ex- revealed, exposed the, the motivation for these false teachers. Remember in Luke 15, the older brother, he slaved away. And what was he upset at? He wanted a fattened calf. 
He wanted a party. False religion, erroneous teaching, anything that undermines the gospel of God has an insidious motivation, an earthly motivation. And so just like the older brother, these uh, Pharisees, they're motivated by money. 1 Timothy 6 talks about that, how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. They are people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. Imagine that godliness is a means to sordid gain, financial gain. Jesus warns his disciples and he's warning us. Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Check your hearts. Last thing you want to be is uh, at the bottom of the ocean because of God's wrath. Followers. It goes on in verse 3 and 4. Must perfectly balance truth and grace. Truth and grace. And so I want you to imagine the disciples' response as Christ uh, checked says verse 3 and verse 4 if your brother sins rebuke him and the apostles are saying great you know actually that's a spiritual gift of mine I'm very good at seeing people's sins and I just love rebuking people right I'll do it and if he repents forgive him okay that's a little difficult but I can do that if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In unison, the apostles respond. They cry out, increase our faith. Right? They do that math seven times every day. In Matthew 18, Christ says, 70 times seven. 490 times, and that's not an exact number, right? This is not a sports statistic. The guy's at 488. He's running out of, uh, you know, repentance and forgiveness. He's only got two left before he's disqualified from the church. No, it's an infinite number. Right? Our response as Christians is to forgive that brother if he repents. And he just has to say, I repent. There is no penance. There is nothing he must do to earn forgiveness. It is by grace. You must forgive him. And they all cry out, exclamation point. Increase our faith. These are standards that are too high, where we have commitment not only to truth, in terms of doctrine and morality, but in terms of grace, of forgiving others who have not only sinned, but sinned against us seven times every day, they respond and they say, well, we can't do this. The disciples recognize that the Savior must grant them special spiritual capabilities beyond their own making to meet the Lord's standards. They are crying out to Him, we can't do this on our own. Right? Don't teach error. We can do this. And their pride, they're saying that. Rebuke other sinners. We can do that. But soon as said, Christ said forgiveness, 
We can't do it. Right. It's their way of saying, You're, you have to help us, Lord. Right. If these are your standards, your expectations, it is impossible for us. The Lord responds to the disciples by indicating that they are correct in assuming that supernatural power is required to meet these standards. Our Lord said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. It will obey you. Power of uh, faith, because the object is Christ. And this exposes them and exposes us. That unrighteousness is not just um, in deed, but unrighteousness is also, especially in the heart. It's difficult to see unrighteousness in the Pharisees because outwardly they were impeccable in their obedience to the law. Outwardly, they were superstars. Right? They had no weaknesses, no faults. They were blameless in their obedience to God's word. They believed in the authority, inerrancy, sufficiency of the Word of God, and they obeyed it with such discipline and commitment, no one can call them out. And yet, it's easy to see their unrighteousness in terms of their heart attitude, where there is, they're lacking love and grace towards these sinners who are repenting before Christ. Likewise with us, when we have commands to do these things and not do these things, our hearts are easily filled with pride. But when Christ calls us to do heart work, which is forgiveness, um, let's bring it home, forgiveness to our spouse, to our children, our parents, close friends, fellow church members, and they... With, with premeditation, with high-handed heart, they sinned against you, and they did it seven times every day to forgive them, reveals that we are not able to meet God's standards. The Pharisees and the disciples refused to accept sinners, to forgive sinners who had failed and now are repentant. Is due to their wrong view of how God accepts people into a spiritual family. All right. Let me explain that. Um, the Pharisees' mindset and even the disciples' mindset, and to a large part because of our legalism, is we believe God accepts us by our works, by our performance. Therefore, we can perform, but we have a hard time forgiving, hard time letting go of grudges and giving grace, being generous with grace and mercy and, and be emp being empathetic and compassionate to others. Because our view of God is that way. God views us based on performance, therefore I view others based on performance. And God exposes that through this next parable. How God is not moved by our deeds. God is not moved by our performance. Verses 7 through 10. And the word servant here is doulos, a slave. It's the idea of a household with a slave. 
And he comes home, and you know, we don't have slaves in America right now, right? And but, and we don't treat even our people that serve us as slaves. I hope you guys don't, you know, like waiters and waitresses and people that help you or people that serve you or employees. But you know, first century Israel, they had slaves, and they had clear social lines between uh, slave owners and slaves. And it's kind of like shocking how they would treat slaves with such uh, disrespect and just uh, not care for them at all. To the point where after this guy serves all day in the field, he says, okay, now wait on me. Okay, wait till I'm done eating. After our whole family's done eating, after the dog is fed, then you can eat. It's this kind of attitude. And after that's done, the slave ought to say, we are unworthy servants. I, I don't, you don't have to say thanks to me. Uh, we've only done our duty. That's what slaves do. Uh, to bring it home to our context, let's say you went to a restaurant with your family and uh, you have a waiter come, a waitress come and does a great job of uh, serving you. And then right after you're done, the waiter sits down and orders food and eats with you and puts that meal on your tab. And you'd be like, what are you doing? And the waiter's like, well, you said I did a good job. Well, you got to say I was a real good waiter, right? I brought your drinks and your food hot and, and perfect on time, and I, I served you with a smile. But you did that, so now I'm going to join your family, right? I'm going to eat with you, and you're going to pay for my food. You would say, that's crazy. That's ridiculous, right? If you had a real estate agent helping you buy a house, and you buy this house, and they are moving in. The real estate agent brings his or her like you know stuff. They want to move in and be a part of your family. You did a great job, but your work—you got three percent commission for doing very little. <laughs> right? Oh, there's no agents here, right? Or the waitress or waiter, fifteen percent. Sometimes I go to frozen yogurt places and they have a tip jar right in front. Why should I give you tip? I serve myself the yogurt. I put the toppings on. All you did was wait and charge me, and you want a tip? Now you want to come home with me and be my family, and I pay for your college tuition? I, 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 crazy, right? No, you just done your duty. That's it. Right? You're unworthy servants. Um. That is what we're doing when we trophy our works before God. If we're in a workspace system, if we think we can impress God, obligate God, control God by paying our own form of penance, whether it be crawling around a church seven times or running a marathon or doing Bible reading every day or, or, or doing... I just told him yesterday, doing pebbles ministry, God, right? I'll, do, I'll take care of the infants of the church, but answer me this prayer, right? I'll do penance by taking care of infants, right? If you think that's going to, well, that might do it, but no. If you think that's going to move God's heart, you're sorely mistaken. In fact, you approach God with that mindset, and He will treat you as you are, as a slave. Not as a member of the family, 
No way will he receive you or welcome you into his household. The first century Jewish custom, eating together was a very intimate event. No way will he allow a slave to sit with him, dine with him, rejoice with him. He will leave you outside. We cannot bribe God with our goodness. Bribe God with right doctrine. Bribe God with correcting other people's sins. Bribe God even with the forgiveness of other people. He will not be controlled. He is no one's debtor. Job 41.11 God said, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Romans 11.34-36 For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Our attempts to barter for God's kindness with our goodness, great efforts, long-standing resolutions will not move God's heart. Then, what moves God's heart? How can we um, have God listen to us, our prayers, and meet our needs and forgive us of our sins and help us to grow in Him. How can we move God's heart? 11 through 19. Here we see marks of true faith. There are some identifying markers of true faith. Five marks that characterize a mustard seed of faith in a person. As he was going to a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. The first mark of true faith is desperation. Desperation. God's heart is moved, not when we protest our innocence, not when we flaunt our good works, Or not when we promise to do better in the future. God's heart is moved when we cry out in desperation and say, God, have mercy. Lord, I need grace. God, I need your love. There is nothing that is in me that warrants me to obligate you to hear me and answer my prayers. The only way I can come to you is by way of mercy, grace, and compassion. It is not God, you owe me. Look what I have done. I have earned your attention. No, we, we must recognize that there is no reason for God to look our way or be moved to love us other than His own love, His own grace. His own mercy. Biblical faith is most evident not when we demand that God honor our flawed deeds, but when we trust that He will mercifully respond when we humbly and helplessly cry out, have pity on us. This is um, so freeing. This is so freeing that God responds to us not by our good works but by our by his mercy. The assumption that God only loves the righteous will tempt us to hide from God and hide our flaws from one another. 
But when we know that God will not turn away from us because of our sins, but because of His mercy will draw near to us, we can unabashedly cry out for His pity and openly, without shame, acknowledge sins of our hearts. Unafraid of God's rejection, we can confront our own evil, our flesh, our pride, our anger, our ambitions, our lusts, our struggle to forgive and say, God, this is who I am. Spiritually, you know, physically, I might not have leprosy, but spiritually, I am leprous. We see uh, such freedom. Second mark of true faith is uh, putting Christ above all by joy. Putting Christ above all motivated by joy. The lepers go to the priests who will declare them cleansed of their disease, 14a. While they're on the way to the priest, they are healed. One of the lepers turns back to go to Christ. Now, he is here um, uh, not, not obeying the Old Testament law to go show yourselves to the priest first when you're healed of leprosy. Second, he is uh, going at a great cost because lepers were segregated, quarantined from the rest of the community. They were covered with leprosy, so most likely they were at advanced stages of leprosy. So it had been at least several years, if not a lifetime, where, or decades where they haven't seen their family, relatives, or friends. Yet, in that condition, this leper, moved by faith, doesn't go home, doesn't go to the priest, doesn't turn to his friends. He does something far more precious. He goes to Christ. He goes to Christ and puts Christ first above all. True faith is marked by um, everything secondary. Everything is inconsequential. What is primary, what is ultimate, is to go to Christ. Uh, Luke nine fifty seven through sixty two. Um, remember, Jesus said to one, "Follow me," and he said, "Let me first go and bury my father." Another said, "I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to those who are at my home." Jesus said to them, "You are not fit for the kingdom of God." True faith definitely puts Christ first. Third mark of true faith is uh that it is marked by exuberant praise, overflowing praise. We see here, um, as loud as his desperation was, as loud as their cry, and Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, likewise his praise was as loud. With a lifted voice, with a loud voice, he praised the Lord. 
He worshipped Christ for his own sake, because of his love for him, because of his gratitude, because of his thanksgiving. He obeyed Christ as soon as he said, go to the priest. As soon as he was healed, he came back with uh, shouts of joy overflowing. Fourth mark. Notice this, you know, his desperation, priority of Christ, exuberant praise. Fourth mark is humility before Christ. Verse 16, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. Giving all glory to Christ for his healing. He gives uh, credit for this miracle completely to Christ. No way is he saying, my righteousness earned this. I deserve this healing. I deserve this miracle. It's not by hard work or striving or righteousness. It's not by my diligence or character. He didn't do anything. Christ did it all. It matches the picture of Revelation 4.10, where the 24 elders of Israel with their crowns will cast their crowns down at the feet of Christ. By casting their crowns down at Christ's feet, their way of saying they owe their triumph all to Christ. All of their victories, all that they have achieved in their lives is done by Christ and Christ alone. And this is what this formal leper has done. And then finally, it is marked by sincere thanksgiving and gratitude. Verse 16, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And now he was a Samaritan. In the context of the Pharisees, he's telling them religious background, ethnic background, moral background does not matter. Faith alone is what counts. And this man of faith was filled with thanksgiving to Christ for what Christ had done in his life. What moves the heart of God is not our works. It's faith alone. And that's how we can know whether our motivations are right in our service to Him. What ultimately keeps our motive motives biblically right it's the profound conviction that obeying God will merit us nothing let me repeat that I mean what what keeps our motivations right keeps them holy before God is the profound conviction that obeying God will merit us nothing that we do all that we do not to as a means to any end the Pharisees did all their righteousness for money. Right. That shows their hypocrisy. Faith, a person of faith, does all that they do, all that he does, for no reason at all. He believes in his heart, I can preach the best sermons ever, and God doesn't owe me anything. 
God doesn't owe me a blessed ministry or a healthy family. God has now has to answer my prayers or I will do this for you, God. I will give this amount. I'll evangelize for you. I'll stop committing these sins. And as a means to some blessing or benefit, then the motivation is wrong. When your motivation is, God, I'm going to evangelize today. I'm going to read my scriptures. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to make these sacrifices. I'm going to do all these things knowing these things do not move you. It benefits me none at all. All the all the things that I'm doing is just the fruit of what moves your heart. All the things that I'm doing are just fruit of what truly pleases you, which is a mustard seed of faith, which is marked by desperation, putting Christ first, overflowing praise, humility, and sincere gratitude. But, but see, what happens now, though, is um, we read those marks and we say, well, i got to be desperate. Okay, so how? Okay, I'm going to sing now. Uh, I didn't sing as loud as I should have. James saw me, I think. So I'm going to really sing during response song. And I'm going to be humble this week before Christ. And, man, I'm going to be the most thankful person, right, uh, ever this week. And, again, that's back to legalism. Right? That doesn't move God's heart. These things in of themselves, apart from faith in Christ, does nothing for Christ. Does nothing for us. Our labor, our striving, our straining is faith. To believe, to trust God, that He is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek after Him. And the reward is... Uh, He'll create in me a heart of desperation where I will not flaunt my own righteousness but beg for His mercy. God will produce in me a fruit of putting Christ first. That's not what I do. That's what God gives me as a gift where I love Him with all my heart, soul, and mind. God will give me this fruit of wanting to sing, open my mouth that I might sing songs of praise, that I might have humility. That is a fruit that God gives to me. That is not my work which I can boast in of my humility and I can be grateful and content, filled with thanksgiving because what Christ has done and is continuing do. Let's remember this Samaritan former leper and let's strive uh, to move this, what is impossible, this mulberry tree into the sea by trusting in Christ that He will reward us with these things as we trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so foolish to think that um, somehow our good works, our our fighting against sin, our ministry could somehow please you because we are so tainted by our pride and our flesh and ourselves that even the best of our works is tainted, it's corrupted is unworthy of you. Even our highest, best praise is unworthy of Christ. Only by trusting in you 
are we made holy and made worthy to to come into your family, be adopted and to not be slaves any longer, not be bound to duty and obligations and work, but be free to call you Abba Father and to sit with you and and enjoy this meal and worship you together and enjoy and receive your love you have for your children. Lord, forgive us for our foolishness and our, our short-sightedness and our pride to of flaunting our good works to, uh, to control you, to obligate you to, so that you might serve us. Lord, uh, Lord, grant us faith. Increase our faith the size of a mustard seed that we might uh, truly worshipers in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.